Hey everybody, I'm Larry Little, and you're listening to Crossing the Line, a podcast where I talk with people about the moments in their lives when they cross the line from leading with their head to leading with their heart and from leading with their heart to leading with their head. Now today on the show, now I've got an incredibly interesting guest. His name is Don Golden. Uh, Currently, he's the principal at Just Capital Quotient, a social impact and sustainability consultancy uh, committed to business as a force for good. But let me tell you something. Don is an incredible person. Uh, He has more than uh, 30 years of experience in international relief and development. He, He sees the world through a unique set of eyes because he's been there. He's been to over 80 countries and has worked with World Relief and and World Vision. He pioneered innovative funding partnerships to support interventions in challenging humanitarian contexts like uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, Peru, Haiti, and the list goes on and on. He is an amazing man who doesn't just talk about uh, doing good. He he really he goes and he experiences how he can truly make a difference. I thoroughly enjoy my conversation with him. He's a high level thinker. Uh, he's a deep thinker, uh, but he's more than just a thinker. He is a doer. So this is probably I'll give you a heads up. This is probably uh, one of these podcasts that you'll want to listen to and then go back and listen to again because he's about to give you some really deep and good uh, uh, nuggets of truth and things for you to think about in your life and in your walk and your journey. So enough of me talking. Let's jump into the conversation with Don Golden right now. Well, I don't know how in the world we pulled this off, but we have Don Golden here with us. Wow. Uh, well, at least Zooming with us. Um, amazing. Don, thank you so much for coming and being willing to share with us today. It is a truly an honor to have you. Wow, my goodness. I wish I wish like I could get your autograph right, right now, but you're on Zoom. But thank you for being here. Uh, Larry, uh, you're flattering me, but I'll take it. Uh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Uh, I, I like your voice, Larry. You know, I, 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 I like a smooth Southern voice that's marked by intelligence and doing good work. And that's you, Larry. So I'm glad to be with you. You know, yeah, I'm so glad that we have you on the show. You already made me feel better. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, my hey, Don, we, uh, we, you're an incredible, seriously, an incredible leader. Um, someone that's not afraid of controversy and someone that's not afraid to speak the truth. And, and boy, those are rare ingredients to today. Uh, maybe not so much about controversy, but certainly about truth. And, and you do that and so beautifully and so articulately. Um, and, and we've talked about that. That earlier in our intro, uh, the works that you have participated in, you're, you're traveling. Uh, but I want to take some time and I want to just learn about you. What what makes up Don? How, how in the world did you become who you are today? So if we could, let's go back and, and let's let's think about. And I want you to take us uh, really maybe through a day in the life of, if you will, go back to your childhood with me. You know, you're, you're six, seven, eight years old. Tell us where you grew up and what was, what was life like for you back then? Oh, that's, uh, it's a fascinating opportunity to do that. Maybe, maybe just to set the context of where the story, my story is headed. Let me just state kind of my my living purpose right now, my sole purpose that I work on now is that I connect investors, businesses, and philanthropists to the knowledge and networks that they need uh, to make the greatest impact that they can. Mm. That's what I do with my life, with my, uh, my work at Just Capital Quotient, our consultancy. And so when I think back of the the journey that led me to this work um, and and going back you know all the way to my childhood in southern Ohio rural Ohio um, growing up in, in Claremont County uh, I look at, at that significance of who I am today and what I'm doing is Claremont County Ohio outside of of Cincinnati is uh, the farthest west county of Appalachia as as delineated 
during the New Deal. So wow. when the New Deal was dividing up the needs of America and, and placing people in the Appalachia was obviously an area of focus, and the county that I grew up in was the furthest west. You don't think of Cincinnati, Ohio, really as Appalachia. Uh, you don't think of Southern Ohio necessarily as Appalachia, but technically it is. And uh, my grandfather was a sharecropper there. He, wow. he moved from Kentucky. He came and I found on Ancestry.com the 1940 census of Goshen, Ohio, where I'm from. And the only thing I, I learned well, which is profound, is uh, his occupation was farmer, his house value was $6, <laughs> and his his income was zero. He oh, was a wow. sharecropper. He yeah. worked, lived in a shack, and worked uh, for that place to live and to grow his own food. And then my both my parents became factory workers in at Newtone in Cincinnati, which is the first company to mass produce electronic doorbells um, and that their jobs really lifted them out of poverty into what I grew up thinking was the middle class. I didn't realize I was once, you know, generation away from severe poverty. Wow. And, and so what I would, what I would point to at, at that age in the very early seventies we were coming out of that, that moment in human history, what Thomas Piketty, the French economist, uh, he's the economist of inequality. He's the one that looked most thoroughly at inequality throughout all of modern history uh, and, and formally, formally studying it. The 1950s and 60s and coming into the 70s was the most equitous time economically in human history. More wealth was spread out more broadly, not just in America, but in Europe and even in other places because colonialism came to an end then around the world. So I grew up in Southern Ohio thinking I was, you know, part of the solid working to middle class, not recognizing the dependency on uh, manufacturing, not seeing what was about to come with a change in the economy, the diminishing of that same place now is struggling because mm. manufacturing jobs have left. The number two, one and two uh, job providers in Southern Ohio is the military and Walmart. Um, gone are those halcyon days of, of manufacturing. So um, I grew up kind of unaware of the blessings I was a beneficiary to, um, but also someone who was by fate going to move into the realm of, of global uh, human development and mm. find myself traveling in 80 countries and engaging uh, at a very deep level in some of the most troubled, poorest places on the planet. And, uh, and beginning this journey of helping people, other people, uh, flourish even amidst challenges. So there's some, some thoughts about wow. uh, early days growing up in Southern Ohio. Well, uh, amazing. And even, even through that journey that you've just taken us through, your passion is so evident. Um, you know, you have, you have done such a tremendous work around uh, relief and, and, and caregiving and, and economic help well, way more than that. Your passion is, is so obvious and, and you are so traveled and, but, but let's go back. So you, so here you are in Ohio. Okay. You're a child. You're both, your parents are both working in the manufacturing world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Well, think about, think about something that, that intrinsically you just like, like you said, you had no idea that things would change so drastically in your mind. This, this, what level am, am I, am I, you know, my mid-level, upper level of poverty, you know, I'm sure as a child, that just didn't happen back in those days. Certainly not like the polarization that we see today, but you're there, you're growing up. Do you have siblings? Do you not? Where are you? And what is something intrinsically that your parents kind of, kind of taught you and brought you through? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was the youngest of four. Um, and the, 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 the critical factor in my life at that age and, and growing up was faith mm. uh, and the role that faith played in shaping values, worldview, 
focus. Uh, and so, but also a kind of tension within faith. Um, we grew up in sort of a country um, fundamentalism, uh, Pentecostalism that was very, very, it was hardcore, you know, basically don't drink, don't smoke, don't, all these lists of don'ts. Right. Which somehow I think would often um, cloud the the beauty of, of religion, of Christianity, of the gospel. But I still was able to see that central, that central belief that there is a God, that this God loves uh, us and me, that uh, this that God has a plan, and so actually at a very young age, um, I felt these inner callings of um, of faith and ministry and a desire to serve. And actually, I remember seeing probably one of the earliest versions of a television commercial promoting uh, relief. To, uh, some some kind of relief. I mean, it would have been in the very early days. So maybe uh, Kampuchea, I remember once the name for Cambodia, I, I remember there was a big, uh, you know, some kind of benefit on television and they were showing these pictures of really, you know, emaciated children. And I remember everyone else that in my life witnessing those pictures mm. would always want to turn the television off. Mm. And I had this compassionate, passionate draw, like, wait a minute, that's happening. You know, that, that cannot, that, that cannot be acceptable. And you're telling me there's a God who loves the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I'm going to think he cares about that. So I, I felt this very early draw Wow. To to human suffering, human need, and attached to it in a way that somehow was very different from everybody around me. You know that is amazing that early in your life you had that passion. That that wasn't necessarily. I, I know it has grown and developed and matured, but but boy, intrinsically you had that passion. And mm-hmm. and you know I remember the same thing. We would you know when missionaries would come in and show us the slides of things. Yes. You know, Many times we just check out, you know, oh boy, another right. mission. Oh, wow. Or, or when those pictures came that were just atrocious to look at on the commercials or whatever, the thing yeah. to do was, you know, turn away or get yourself busy and, and, and not, but you were locked in. How in the world could this be? What, what were your parents and your siblings? Cause you were the baby, right? You're the, the baby That's of the right. family. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what was their response to your passion? So Don is about to talk about uh, his earliest remembrance of his passion. It, it's amazing to me that people who are really making an impact uh, many times have carried passion with them around whatever the su- subject is for, for, for years. And for Don, his passion developed early on as a young child at a count meeting. Really intriguing. Well, I don't. I when I first remember a response was, and you mentioned uh, missionaries, and and you know this country church that we went to. Never, I don't ever remember a missionary coming to our our church. But it was uh, our church was based as a denomination in Jellicoe, Tennessee. So there you ca- comes the the, the <laughs> Appalachian route. So yes. every summer we would go to what they call the assembly, and it was uh, it was a camp meeting big tent outside in Jellicoe, Tennessee. If you ever travel down I-75, you go across the Jellicoe Mountains, literally right there. Uh, and I, you know, I, it seems to me that there were 30,000 people. There was probably 600, I don't know, but it was a massive meeting yeah. that we would go to every year. And one year they had missionaries or actually even ministers from India. And I was mesmerized. I mean, I hung on every word. And at the end they gave, you know, the old fashioned altar call. I believe somebody's calling some of you into ministry. Right. And before my family, my mother, my my grandmother, and maybe one or two of my sisters was there. The next thing they know, little Donnie, they called me Donnie, was uh, had slipped out of the out of the aisle and was standing on the stage with these missionaries with about six others, and they were laying hands on me and praying and and uh, sending <laughs> me out into the mission field, and it became right. actually a seminal moment, even though it was. Mm-hmm. When I look back on it, it's kind of, you know, it would be like a movie scene, you know, it would be so foreign to my that own experience awesome. now, but mm. at that time, their 
what what happened when they were talking about need, opportunity in the globe and an invitation. They didn't ask me to ask somebody. They asked me. And as a very young boy, I think I might have been 10 or 12 then. Um, I got up and went, you know, stood up on the stage. They laid hands and I took that as I'm this is what I'm called to do. And I've actually never backed away from that. I've only it's only grown and taken shape and taken form. But it was very real and very powerful encounter for this young lad. You know, what a milestone moment in your life, even in that that fundamentalist type setting. God put that passion in you and and you Mm -hmm. pursued that. For, exactly. for, for the entire, for your entire yeah, life. So right. move us forward a bit. You're, you're an adolescence. You're, you're a teenage guy now trying to figure things out. You're in high school, um, looking at, at pursuing this passion. What was that like? And, and how did you decide where you were going as maybe in college and that kind of thing? How did you, how did you make those calls? Yeah. Um, I, so, so, uh, you know, f- fundamentalism is actually part of the story because I-, I came to recognize its limitations and even even I'd have to say kind of the violence that's inherent in mm-hmm. fundamentalism that's exclusionary that it's um, that th- that that it's fear inducing um, and that it obscures the the power of uh, life that uh, that can be unleashed in. Yes. Um, and following uh, a, a, your religious tradition in its essence and its in its spirit, mm. uh, as I came to do uh, more and more. And when I was in college, I try I, I thought I would go into ministry. I thought I would go into you know I wanted to follow this uh, this this dream. But I so I enrolled in Bible college, moved from um, you know rural Ohio. Uh, and, uh, and found myself in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And after a couple of years in college, I could just, the, the passion was waning. And I, I, I just didn't see the connection between this study I was doing. And so a friend of mine had become a missionary in Vienna, Austria. And he was kind of a mentor of mine. And he was working with refugees, this is 1989, coming out of Eastern Europe just prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was sharing my frustrations with him in letters. Remember back in those days when you put you wrote on pieces of paper and you you, you put them in yes. envelopes and people wow. carried them? It's a strange... It's, it's archaic. But... We had bones in, in our noses. Um, <laughs> and I was talking with him about this. And, and so he called me one day and said, hey, you know, do you have any money? I said, yeah, money for my next semester. He said, why don't you just come here instead? So I was like, yeah. So I, I dropped out of college. I bought a one-way ticket to Vienna, Austria, but I, I didn't know. I thought Vienna was in Italy. I didn't know nothing about the world. <laughs> and I bought a one-way ticket to Vienna thinking, yeah. I don't know, Vienna, Siena, I don't know. He lives in Austria, but for some reason I'm flying to Vienna. Anyway, that's how much I knew about the world. <laughs> and that experience, even though probably every parent's nightmare for their child, um, I just did it. Again, didn't ask anyone. And the he worked with refugees. He, ran, he worked at a, it was a place called the Oasis. Um, it's actually quite well known among it's got a, quite a history because of its service to refugees over now decades in um, just south of Vienna, Austria. Any given evening, there would be as many as 35 different people groups. Hmm. Uh, so I enrolled in um, the University of Vienna to study German, and I worked, volunteered at this cafe. And my mind was blown, you know, going from um, – uh, an ice kind of an isolated community without much of a broad worldview to, you know, every day I walked through uh, the, the park, Fotif Kirka Park next to the University of Vienna, and I would pass Sigmund Freud's house, his apartment where he did his groundbreaking, world-changing yep. uh, analyses. And, you know, so, and I would pay $2 and go to hear uh, Mozart's uh, magic flute performed at the opera house. And I did my mind, and I found myself incredibly curious about 
everything, you know, mm. all these different people groups. I started studying, you know, why, why are, why are Albanians wired the way they are? What is Kosovo? What is this Albanian part of Yugoslavia? I went from knowing nothing about the world to taking a deep dive into, you know, why are not, why are Nigerians coming here? What, what's about the nature? Why are Ghana, what's happening in Ghana that would be leading people to be political exiles or Liberia, which was a brutal war at the time. Um, it was just incredible. <laughs> and it just lit a fire in me to understand the world, understand world, you understand faith. It made me question, oh, so I'm going to heaven and they're all going to hell because I was born here and have this faith and have ascribed to these propositions and they haven't. What kind of God does that? It made me, it forced me to dig deeper into mm. what my faith was about. Now I get it. This is uncomfortable talking about what kind of God would do that. But if we are are serious uh, about our lives, about our, our core values, about our faith, I think we have to ask these hard questions. And what I like about Don is he had the courage to ask that question. What, what kind of God would do this? And then he was strong enough uh, to go seek out that answer. Wow. Uh, and to understand other faiths. And um, uh, that, that was a, another really important uh, um, period of change for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yet another milestone. So now, you know, you actually immersed yourself. You experienced it. You didn't just hear about it. You didn't just read about it. You didn't just study. That's right. uh, you immersed yourself in that culture and, and found yourself. Uh, intrigued. Now, while while you're doing that, you're there. You're you're a young man. You're having all these new stimuli. You know, hitting you at, at one time. Is your passion still there for those who are underserved? Oh, yeah. And and oh yeah, and then you know it it just blew up. You know, and and travel. I, I took every opportunity to travel around the world. I was sent to Yugoslavia during the war and did research for our the agency I was with. Uh, you know, confronting war up. Up front, um, I, I entered into Romania and Hungary and Czech when it was still Czechoslovakia. As soon as it was possible to travel, into the, I, I drove a, a van full of medical supplies to Italy and boarded a ferry with a truck and took it to Albania. Days after Albania opened, after years of being a closed country, so I was just totally immersed in history you know this uh, history was unfolding in this you know this place on the planet and uh you know i went from southern ohio not knowing where vienna was to being in the center of uh, you know a really unique time um and and my my uh calling simply uh deepened to to keep going um, with this work so so help Help us to understand at this point, and this is this may be a you know I'm going to chase a, a rabbit uh, from what we're we're talking about, but I have to know this because you, you're immersed, you're doing all these things, you're 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 on in the middle of a war, you're over here doing this when a country just opened, and was there a time you ever thought about your life, and did you feel like your life was in danger on on, on any of these adventures that you found yourself uh, you know participating um, in? Yeah, you know, in the general sense, the only thing I thought about my life was that God had brought me out of a, uh, you know, when I when I look back in southern rural Ohio, the things that matter to me, it was hard to find them present, you know, there. There was a kind of fundamentalist religion, there were cars, there were, you know, sports, and those, and those were not you know, I didn't have the money for cars. I didn't have the gifts for sports. So there wasn't really a path for me. So finding this connection between faith, learning, and um, working for human good, just so in that sense, it just felt like a climbing a ladder of success in the sense that I'm doing what I get to do. I'm, I get to do what I want to do. Um, but I do remember encountering how frightening war is, how all-consuming it is, how brutal. I stayed in a hotel, uh, a UN hotel, a hotel that was being used by the UN, and I saw atrocious photographies. A, a war photographer had his 
something you would never see anywhere except in a war zone. Um, the, the, this uh, basically, um, you know, a, a showing of, of war photography and the brutality, the, the, the uh, I mean, human brutality at its most vicious. Uh, and actually, because our work was faith related, I saw churches in a new light, you know, churches that two years before would have maybe been arguing about the color of the carpet and whether they should pave the parking lot. We're now dealing with issues of ethnic cleansing where I was invited by a pastor because one member, the, uh, the Serbs had fled Croatia. And so another church member took over the apartment. Well, that's our apartment now. And then that Serb ref family came back and they were having it out. Well, you don't deserve this home. You're a Serb and we've cleansed Croatia of Serbs. And this is a church. So I, I was taken by the pastor inside a living room that had two sets of furniture, listening to two Christians argue about whether one was cleansed or not and who owns their apartment. I mean, so I saw the church's fundamental role in, try, you know, reconciling human uh, brokenness and human relationships is is visceral and material in this reality. And so it actually, I actually, from there, uh, I moved to Britain. I lived in England for five years and I did a dissertation on the role of the church and basically its role in healing the world. What it, what, what was the biblical design for this church? Because I don't think it was what it looks like now, which is a building on the corner where you go on Sunday, wear your good clothes, and then go about your life. Somehow this group of humans are supposed to put the world back together. They, they have a fundamental role that I think has been lost. I did my dissertation on that topic based on my experiences in Yugoslavia during the war. Amazing. So, so what happened on to to Ohio, uh, your family, to that. What happened What happened to those people who knew you before you had this experience? Now you're on this journey. You're thinking differently. Uh, your faith has grown, but but perhaps not in the way that you were raised in the fundamental com- fundamentalist community, right? Talk to us a little bit about the dynamics that you experienced from those back in the States who knew you and loved you before, but really have no exposure to what you're doing. And now they hear you proclaiming this, this, this ideology that, you know, the church is, is not doing what it should or, or isn't what it needs to be. Those kinds of thoughts, because you're living in this, this whole new uh, environment and you're growing, but they're not. So what, what happened there? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, what I found there was uh the response was overwhelmingly positive and supportive and encouraging. Uh, they, they just loved what I was doing. They, uh, mm. they were, my family was so encouraging in every way. I became something of a, like, I don't know, family hero or something. Cause I'm wow. off doing these great things and great. you know they would read the newsletters and the way that you know, there's some things I've learned that I don't like so much now, but there's kind of a a missionary way of in order to raise money, you tell a great story and somehow it does set you up on a little bit of a pedestal. And and in some ways, like vicariously, we care about the world through Don, but we don't really have to do that ourselves because that's for those special people that go do these crazy things. But that, but in general, it was just always very positive, but I was, I was growing, I was changing, my worldview was expanding, I was becoming less and less familiar with my own roots. And my, I lost my sister when she was 29, when she was 39, and so I came home from England in time to spend some time with her. And I remember her saying something that cut me pretty deeply. She said, uh, when are you going to stop being ashamed of your background? Oh, wow. And I didn't know I was conveying that you know i didn't know that i was conveying while i've gone on and you and man it cut me but it caused me you know many years of reflection that there are things that you have to move away from and disassociate yourself from perhaps in your growth trajectory but if you don't reconcile those things if you don't go back and reconcile them Mm. to who you really are Mm. if they remain like a 
oh, that was, but now I, it's, it's a demonstration of kind of unresolved conflict and hurt. And, and so I did begin to, and now that's why I, you know, I've done the research. I, I, you know, the fact that my grandfather, you know, was a, uh, you know, was a very poor man and the distance that we've traveled has helped me integrate my own passions, embrace my own roots. It deepens my credibility in this, in this work, because I think I have made that, that reconciliation. So I would say my family was very positive until, (laughs) and, uh, and there was an until when, and this, and this until, demonstrates to me the difference between compassion and justice. Mm. Compassion is about those needy people. Justice is about my role in that need and in that oppression or in that problem. Mm. I say, uh, if you scratch compassion long enough, you will eventually find an injustice. Yeah. And um, when I was over there working with those poor Africans, it didn't matter that in that context, I was diving into policy issues, challenging governments, you know, as you have to, as you're working in economic development, for example, and recognizing the, the corruption at every level in, a, in a, a struggling country, you end up challenging all the powers that be. But no one, rec- you're not doing that at home. When I when I moved on and I spent especially the three years not too long ago as executive director of Red Letter Christians, working with Tony Campolo, Shane Claiborne, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, William Barber, these faith-oriented Christian, you know, radical justice people, I felt like I was But because we were looking at issues of, for example, policy about immigration and uh, and our treatment of people at the border. To me, they were just the same kinds of issues, but now they're politicized and one group has one view and another group has another view. And so actually my dad said to me not long ago that one of my uncles asked him, what happened to Donnie? <laughs> so which, for me, I was just doing the same work. Yeah. Um, but when you come home and now right. you're, you're, you know, it's not just off doing wonderful things among those people, but trying to seek change and justice at home. Trying to seek justice at home. Not doing it when it's far away, but, but coming back to those that love you and you love them and maybe taking a stand against what they have traditionally um, been for. It takes a lot of courage. That's what I'll say. It gets a little personal and that that was more difficult, more challenging. But what actually helped me, uh, you know, sharpen like sort of what is my voice among those I don't agree with or those I feel like need to be challenged and what how does Christ handle, you know, what ways did he do that? And um, so, yeah, the hero status until I brought something home. <laughs> you know, it, it is so true. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges we have is it, as followers of Jesus, even. And that is that, you know, how do you disagree and and passionately disagree, but honor the relationship with those that you love with? The, you know, yeah. we, we see that now more than ever in our political you know environment where families have been just cut in two and split and and we can't seem to have civility in in our conversation and you know you, you know there's a time for there's a time to, to 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 be assertive and then there's a time to to listen and yeah. so i think you're 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 just spot on i can't imagine you came back trying to apply what you had learned and your thinking and your spirituality and and who you are you wanted to make remain true to that but then it causes some what happened yes. to Donnie, kind of? Um, exactly. Yeah, kind of. Uh, just to, to close that loop, I, the main lesson that I learned is actually, uh, well, I won't go into its roots, but the punchline is retaining the humanity of your of your interlocutor or your opponent in your argument. You know, mm-hmm. that that's, you see it missing today in, yes. in humanizing the other, maintaining the humanity, understanding the humanity of, of the other. I think that missionary background of contextualization, going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, understanding, trying to understand why there's so much violence, looking at the role of conflict minerals and how they're playing out in a 
context and and really making sure that you understand or try to understand that they say your 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 window sill uh, defines your worldview or something like that you know where from where you are looking defines how you see the world and um, yes. maintaining the humanity of the other even when they don't do that maybe for you insisting on retaining their humanity and retaining your own in the process is i think at least a an important element of how we engage in this civil uh, strife and, and, and division that we do have now. Well, it's, it's incredibly important in creating unity as believers. And I think, I think that is, it takes, that's something that takes incredible maturity, not just emotional maturity, but spiritual maturity as well. And, and certainly you have demonstrated that. And, and as you have had these experiences, 80 something countries, amazing difference that you're making, come back and, and lead large organizations. Now you find yourself principle of a company um, and tell us a little bit about that and, and tell us a little bit about what your vision is for that for, yeah. for uh, well, just Capital. one of the organizations that I worked with world relief is and was a pioneer in what we now know as microfinance um, the you know providing small loans for mostly women at least in its early days um, women people who are not banked bringing them together and forming group collateral uh, between the group. So each covers their the, the loans when they can't be repaid and then equipping those uh, folks to do, um, uh, to, to use that money in a way to sustain themselves. And then building banks actually that, that make that work happen, microfinance uh, institutions, MFIs. World Relief is a world leader in that um, work beginning in the 80s in Bangladesh, where Muhammad Yunus, who pioneered the concept, began. Um, eventually, he would win the Nobel Prize, uh, and microfinance, his book, Banker to the Poor, would kind of blow this methodology up, and people would begin to learn about it. But you know, I got to be involved in it for, for years, raise a lot of money for it around the world, help uh, start some of the most thriving banks in Africa, now microfinance banks, I was involved wow. in a few, one in Rwanda, one in Burundi, one in, um, uh, in East Congo. Um, and that it's in its own, my own experience, that was the most impactful, sustainable development I was ever a part of. And wow. I was involved in lots of great things, but none more sustainable, enriching and empowering than microfinance. And then some of my colleagues that I worked with in, that, in their world uh, relief went on to pioneer other forms of economic development. Um, uh, savings clubs, which is sort of even closer to the poorest of the poor. Microfinance reaches not the poorest of the poor, the poorest of the economically active. Savings clubs have kind of gone even further down into the uh, into poverty, but then going up towards basically ec- um, starting purposeful businesses. Pay attention right here. He, he's really going to talk about a massive change in the way um, we do business and, and especially the corporate world and, and then all the way down to, to entrepreneurs, um, the purpose of business. What it, What is the purpose? And boy, it really spoke to me. Um, what is the purpose of my business? It, it's, it's the dollar versus the people. It's the dollar versus the cause. Um, and I, I think we're in a transitional time here, maybe even in history. So listen up to what he has to say about it. So many of my colleagues are now involved in all kinds of different aspects of what you might call impact investing or impact ventures, creating businesses that are worthy of investment because they're solving social and environmental problems. Um, I have just some world-class colleagues that I call friends that are in these amazing places. So four years ago, uh, after my time at World Vision, where I, I served for three years as uh, vice president of church 
relations there. I, I kind of wore out my own energy for raising money for, for large institutions, charitable institutions. And I, I thought, man, if that same amount of money that I've been involved in raising could help go into these business ventures, um, I think that would be good. And so, mm. so that's how I made this sort of segue into mm. um, impact investing, purposeful business. And um, I didn't know where it would lead, but it has resulted in a partnership, um, Just Capital Quotient. There are four partners, and and we 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 have two arms. We have a consultancy, and we have uh, we we have a technically it's an investment club. These are folks that come together to work together and to share in the effort of how to use available capital to start or further purposeful businesses. So there's these two arms, um, the capital and the consulting. And on the consulting side, what has happened surprisingly is we've, we've, you know, there are some major changes happening above my, way above my head at the highest levels of the economy. Uh, an awakening that shareholder capitalism, Milton Friedman's view that the sole purpose of a business is to make a maximum mm-hmm. profit for the shareholder. In 2018, the business roundtable, all the powerful CEOs publicly repudiated that. That, that Our world cannot handle that view anymore. Uh, Larry Fink, the world's largest investor at BlackRock, his letter in 2019, a fundamental reshaping of finance, where he basically said, if you aren't disclosing your environmental and your social profile, we will divest from you. That wow. was huge. That wow. that shifted this conversation from the Birkenstock wearing hippie, like you know maybe Jerry or, or, or uh, right. you know the the what's the the ice cream? Uh, yeah, yeah, ben, yeah, Ben and Jerry, yeah, Ben and Jerry's. You know those guys have been doing it, but um, but this put it into the mainstream, and then. In 2020, his letter comes out. People think maybe he's going to back away from this from COVID, and he doubles down. In fact, he provides statistics, and he says the businesses that are already disclosing have outperformed their sector sector on average by 65 percent. Wow! This is the future. So those are the economic trade wins and publicly traded companies. They're already signaling their changes. Now, the cynic, just an aside here, the cynic can say. Well, that's hypocrisy. That's virtue signaling. That's greenwashing. But I recently read this comment by uh, this my favorite Marxist, uh, Slavoj Žižek. I always read this um, what he writes, and he said that virtue always begins in hypocrisy. You know, so we start talking about something we probably have no intention of doing, or can't really attain to. And then three people start talking about it. And then one of them starts taking it seriously. And, and, you know, it it begins to grow. So there are changes happening. And what has happened for us at Just Capital Quotient is that we have stumbled into the middle of a number of small and medium businesses who already have this passion, Um, but they need a little help in one of one or all of these three areas. One is purpose. Like we know we have a purpose beyond mm. profit, but we haven't exactly integrated it into the warp and woof of our of our mm. business planning or necessarily it's it's implicit in our culture but not explicitly stated. So we we try to help look at and draw out that purpose. Secondly, is a much more technical area in either impact or sustainability. You can use either of those terms. But, uh, you know, for example, what, whatever your business manufactures, learning, it's the material impact of that process of the life cycle of your product on the environment. Sometimes companies don't know or they only know one thing. They don't, maybe they only know the positive thing or maybe they only know the negative thing. They don't know the whole life cycle. So sometimes a company wants to sort of go out and say, hey, we're doing good for the environment, but they're a little worried. Well, what about the things I don't know? So doing an audit, doing a sustainability and impact audit, making sure you, it's like before you want to run a marathon, maybe go to your doctor and see what your own health is. Right, right. Uh, Makes m- sense. Where do you need, what areas do you need to work on. So we do these sustainability audits. How are you treating people in the planet and how can you quantify that and then stand behind it if you were ever to be challenged or you you uncover risks 
and you un uncover opportunities. And then the third area is design or communication. How do you communicate out to your constituents, stakeholders, customers, uh, your purpose and your commitment to people and the planet? So um, that's, that's what JCQ, Just Capital Quotient, is doing. And I never thought I would know, for example, about uh, foam polyurethane spray. These, uh, you know, so not, for example, this is the, and it's, it's, it's almost like being back in Vienna and learning about, you know, Kosovar Muslims living in, in, uh, in Yugoslavia, just learning all these important things. So this SPF, this, uh, this spray polyurethane foam, it, this is a, it's a white substance that gets sprayed on top of industrial roofs. Big deal. But I, if, you if you come to learn that the number three thing that goes into landfills is roof tear-offs. Wow. And these white roofs, so we have this company that we connect with called White Hat. They put this spray on. You don't have to do the te roof tear-off. Your roof goes from black which collects heat during the summer to white, which reflects the heat and brings your energy costs down. It's amazing. You know, just doing, right. finding the things that you do or can do to improve your impact in the world. We help companies discover those things, understand how they relate to their market and communicate. Uh, that, it's amazing. And we're going to put some things in the show notes so they can connect with JCQ. We want, we want to get you connected that what a, what a great organization you're, you're, you're partnering and the principal in. It's amazing. And it's exciting to think about that, not just uh, individually, but it corporately glow, uh, you know, as a, as a global economy, people are beginning to pay attention to things that matter and, and to have a business on purpose. And, and yeah, that's love right. that. And uh, we, that's a whole nother conversation that we can have Don, And maybe we will about what's driving that. And even down to recruiting and, and the millennials coming in and those under them are saying, yeah, you better have a social right. purpose. And, and we see that in our business as well, as we deal with uh, fortune, we want 100 companies and, and all the way down to, to small entrepreneurs. I love that purpose driven business and so we want people to be connected i could talk to you forever but we need to we need to draw this thing to a close so i, I want to do this i want to ask you a question and and get your wisdom uh as a leader if if there's a a young leader young don or or, or young diane in in right now they're listening to you and and they're saying man you know, I want to, I'm trying to figure out, maybe I'm in college, maybe I'm out of college, maybe I'm just in the workforce, but I, I need to get this thing figured out in my life. I'm an aspiring young leader. What two or three things would you tell them that they really need to focus on in order to, to find their purpose and to find what they need to be doing uh, in their life? Yeah, well, I happen to be working with a, with a lot of people right now on that very question. And so that to me, there's a, a pattern that has emerged in these conversations and it's threefold. And number one, well, before the three is the general idea of faith, whatever mm. your religion is, your knowledge that you are more than your body, that life is more than material, that, that there is a, an essence, a substance of you um, that, that, that defines who you are. For me as a Christian, that is, you know, where I play host to, to God, to the divine. Mm. And that is a very important thing. If prophet isn't your God, what will be, you know, so, mm. so you got to tap into something that's bigger than yourself. Uh, and so it raises the issue of spirituality, your own spiritual practice, your own path. And when you have that, when you, uh, when you feel like, you know, you, you have that, then, then there's really three stages, I think, that we go through. The first is contemplation. That's really just getting quiet enough, regularly enough to understand who we are and, and the world we live in. And, um, and really just knowing ourselves and the world and our, our moment in history. And then out of that, step two is the intention. You know, I, with who I am and who the world is and what its great need is, what my best gift is, what would I like to do? What would I like to, like, what's the, in 150 years, what world do I hope is there when I'm gone? And what can I do? What would I, what intention can I set to be part of making that world a reality? Uh, and then the third is manifestation. When you're, when you're, the intention of your heart is true and has integrity, then 
you know, the, the book uh, by Paolo Ciola, uh, The Alchemist, he says that the universe conspires to help us. Mm. And so, you know, when you know yourself, when you set an intention that's true and has integrity, well, I'll give you an example of a, one that's not. I'm 54. I really need a red convertible to make myself most appealing for a future wife, or I need a, another business card that says VP of, uh, because my ego needs that. That's a false intention. That's an intention mm. that's coming out of your false self. Mm. And you can want those things. That's not the issue. It's just right. not your sole purpose. So when mm. your intention flows with integrity out of your true purpose that you've, that you've found yes. in, in your time of quiet, reflection, Moment. then we can begin to celebrate when that call comes, you know, or when that person you meet, when that business card appears in your hand, those things begin to happen. And then you begin to know what to go with. And so we set an intention and then we, we, we live our lives in gratitude as that intention begins yeah, to make, like be that. made manifest and we celebrate our role in building a better world. Wow. Don, thank you. This is amazing. I, I should just, we should just keep going. I, I could learn from you all day long, but uh, well, it's, we're gonna, fun. it's fun. Larry. I appreciate your curiosity. And again, that awesome, that, that awesome, smooth as silk uh, Southern accent. I love it. <laughs> yes. It, it, I, you know, I have to own that. What did you, you just taught me. I've got exactly. to be, be proud it's of yours, my roots man. and my past and double down reconcile on that. That's exactly right. <laughs> you, you are something else. That brain of yours is, is quite amazing. And thank you for sharing it with us. I hope that we will uh, convince you to come back and let's do this again. And yeah, I'd love to learn I'd from love you. To, Larry. Uh, I want to, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for this conversation. Um, just an, an incredible leader. Truly you are making a difference, Don Golden. Thank you for, for um, all you're My doing. pleasure, Larry. Good to be with you. Take, Take care. care. Wow. My goodness. Um, what, what a podcast. Uh, what an interesting individual with such depth, such purpose, uh, such experience, uh, heart. Uh, I tell you, I enjoyed this, but really I, I learned a lot and, and, and I was challenged personally. I hope, I hope that you are. His company is just capital quotient. You can look that up. Uh, it, you know, Don is, is an activist. There's no doubt, uh, for, for, for bringing relief and care to those who are in need on a on a global scale on what wisdom he gave to aspiring young leaders that applies to every one of us uh, contemplation spend some time thinking um, be okay with yourself in the quiet for, for a while put that phone down put that laptop down and and listen and think and and even pray and and then be intentional about where you want to go be intentional about your legacy be intentional about what drives you more than material things more than surface things what is your purpose and and be grateful that you can bring that to fruition you can manifest it it can be manifested in you uh, wow that's a such a great advice for for leaders really across the world uh, I, I love when I can learn and and those are those are great tools for not only aspiring uh, young leaders but for all of us in leadership contemplation intentionality and manifestation thank you so much for being a part today. I truly appreciate the fact that you gave up some time uh, to listen to Crossing the Line. I hope that it spoke to you. I hope that you learned something from Don in our, in our interaction. Uh, and I hope that you can cross that line from leading with your head to your heart and leading from your heart with your head as well. Uh, thank you for making a difference. We will see you next time.